The Bowery Boys, episode 118, Times Square, Crossroads of the World. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City, on the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. You guys have asked for it, and we're finally doing a show on one of the most popular places in New York, the main destination if you're a tourist, and the place where millions of people stream through every day. That would, of course, be Crossroads of the World... Times Square. And why is it, Greg, that we put off doing this show for so long? I mean, we're now at our third holiday episode, Mm -hmm. and we finally decided to tackle this because it's, of course, seasonally relevant. But I feel like we just, we've been putting it off. Well, the history is very complicated, and we can get lost on so many tangents that this could be a nine-part episode or a nine-hour show. Because when you're talking about Times Square... You could be talking about so many different things. There's an actual square or an intersection. There's the theater district. There's 42nd Street. There are all these different things. And I'd like to add that maybe another reason that we've taken our time to finally get to this topic is living here in New York for a while. A lot of New Yorkers have very complicated emotions about Times Square. They both love it and they avoid it. Sure, it's complicated, Greg, but it's also fascinating and I dare say... Fabulous. There is so much fun history behind Times Square. I have to say, my love of Times Square has returned. So take your seats as we visit the history of Times Square. Now, Tom, I have an unusual question to ask you. What is Times Square? What is it to you? Because it actually has a few answers, believe it or not. Do you want me to answer? (laughs) No, I I actually have this one. Oh, so it was rhetorical. It it was a rhetorical. It was meant to hang out there in the mist, like an electronic sign that would be hanging in Times Square. So, of course, it's the crossroads of the world is one of its more famous nicknames. It's literally a crossroads of cross streets and Broadway and 7th Avenue. Figuratively, of course, because people from all around the world visit it each year. It's also called the Great White Way, which I will explain a little bit later. One way to look at Times Square is it's simply the plaza area that's created by the intersection of Broadway and 7th Avenue. These two triangular blocks that sort of point at each other. Right, because there's nothing square about the space. Nothing. between, And that, those would be between 42nd Street and 47th Street. So that open plaza. And that's where a lot of those electronic advertisements are centered. You can also open your arms a little bit further and pull in all of West 42nd Street from 6th Avenue to 8th Avenue. You can include that within the Times Square area. And that has a lot of theaters... And, of course, has been the subject of a lot of renovation and a lot of rehabilitation sure. in the past 20 years. Then, if you want to embrace even further, go out into some of those side streets to the what would be called New York's Theater District or Broadway District. All of those side streets that radiate out of the plaza. You can even consider Times Square to be stretching up further up 47th Street, maybe up to 49th or 50th Street, because a lot of the same sort of 
Times Square style, the same pizzazz, mm. is sort of infiltrated up further that way and even down towards 40th Street. So it is an intersection, but it's also grown over the past century to include the entire neighborhood and the theater district. Yes, it's a way of life, a very sassy, bright, flashy way of life. Now, the Northern Triangular Block uh, between 45th and 47th actually goes by another name called Duffy Square. It was named after a religious man, the Father Francis Duffy. And a statue of Father Duffy is still there by the TKTS. It's amazing, yes. He's standing right there, right next to another statue of George M. Cohen. Mm -hmm. That would be the entertainment, the showman of the early days of Broadway, best known for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Give my regard to Broadway. There's all these wonderful structures. Some of, some of them are actually quite old around the Times Square area, but those almost seem secondary to all of the bright, beautiful, state-of-the-art advertisements that, that stretch up for stories and stories. It's such a wonderland. It's, uh, you're, just, you're almost in a trance when you mm. come into Times Square. Such an amazing and radical transformation from what it was 110 years ago, back when it was something far more modest, needless to say. Back when it was, in fact, an area called Long Acre Square. But before I talk about Long Acre Square, Greg, just a word about the Commissioner's Plan of 1811. When these guys would impose the grid on the island of Manhattan and create all these blocks, they would, of course, create very few public parks or breathing spaces. And really, the only breathing spaces that were given to the island were the areas where Broadway would hit these major avenues or the major east-west streets. And so that, that, of course, these little spots along Broadway, like at 23rd Street, 34th Street, 42nd Street, and so on, gave us a little bit of breathing room. And, and these are places that we call squares, even though they're not squares at all. And some of them are even circles, like Columbus, Columbus Circle. Circle. Um, you know, Broadway, it's amazing. It's sort of like a, a charm bracelet draped diagonally down the island at these intersections. At each one, there's something really special and interesting that's gone on through the city's history. So then up to 42nd Street, in Dutch and colonial times, this area was home to a hamlet called Great Kill. Not the hamlet on the stage. Okay. <laughs> that would come much, much later. Which was also a great kill at the end of it, but... Oh. And Great Kill, the hamlet, became a sort of carriage-making center. Now, in the 19th century, the area was renamed Long Acre because in London, the carriage-making center was also called Long Acre. Two words. Mm -hmm. There were all these carriage shops, stables for horses, and in fact, the American Horse Exchange was run in this area, run by William Henry Vanderbilt. I, was, I thought that was a Vanderbilt production. Oh, now, as we've mentioned in countless other podcasts, by the late 19th century, this city was pushing further north. It was becoming more fashionable to live outside the commercial center, the manufacturing center. The Long Acre area had also developed a slight reputation for prostitution, for thievery, for the lesser arts. Well, it's nearby the neighborhood that would be referred to as the Tenderloin. Long Acre was just north of the Tenderloin. Right. And after the Five Points was sort of rehabilitated in that area, a lot of that crime and vice drifted up here to the Tenderloin. And Long Acre also took on a new nickname, the Thieves' Lair. Sounds promising, especially if you're going up there to, to stable your horses. Now, the theater district had been, of course, down around City Hall, along Park Row. In the 19th century, the, the theaters pushed further north to be closer to their clients around Union Square. 
and then later on would push even further north up around Madison Square Park. They would all tend to cluster around each other so that they created these true theater districts. And you're right, Union Square was probably the first real theater district up Broadway, right? So exactly. So where our history today starts is with the theaters inching up Broadway between Madison Square, Herald Square, and closer to 42nd Street, Longacre Square. Before Longacre got its new name, there was a theater that tried to push into this territory, and that was actually a theater called the Olympia, which was opened and run by Oscar Hammerstein I. Now, Hammerstein, of course, is a theatrical name known to anybody who knows anything about Broadway history. He is the grandfather of Oscar Hammerstein II. Hammerstein made his fortune in cigars and in theater. He decided to open up this theater, an enormous show palace, between 44th and 45th Street at Broadway in 1895. That is quite far up if you consider that like a lot of the main houses are seven or eight blocks down. And of course, in between are a bunch of horses and a, a kind of a filthy neighborhood. And if you also consider that the electric lights even stopped at 42nd Street. And the subway hadn't opened yet. So people had to trudge up Broadway or 7th Avenue, get to this new place, and then walk basically at night through dark streets to get to this Olympia. I would even go as far and say this is kind of an unwise idea from <laughs> Mr. Well, Hammerstein. He was a fun-loving guy. He wanted to open a theater. And he didn't just open a theater, Greg. He also gave it a music hall, a concert hall, and a roof garden. I mean, it sounds like it was a great place. Unfortunately... It was also a big flop. Things had not gotten there yet. It just yeah. didn't happen he yet. He had gotten ahead of the scene. So there we have it at the turn of the century, 1900, and Hammerstein is struggling with his Olympia Theater. Well, two very significant things would be announced around this time. They would be both completed in 1904, but just the announcement of these things was enough to get people excited and to think about, well, maybe moving up to this Long Acre Square. They don't all have to be, you know, horse stables and places like that. They, were, they even sold horseless carriages around here, by the way. This was the one of the early places to sell automotives. The first announcement was, of course, something we've spoken about many times this year on the podcast, the subway. The subway would open on October 24th, 1904. Now, what's so significant here is that there would be a major and very pivotal train station built at 42nd Street and 7th Avenue. And Tom, give it to us one more time. How did that, what, the, was, that, what was that route to that original train station? The original route of the IRT, mm -hmm. the first route that opened was, of course, from City Hall up to Grand Central Terminal, then it hung a left, went westward to Times Square, where it turned northward and continued on up the Upper West Side, which is fascinating because it's a hybrid of several different lines we have today. Mm -hmm. It was now incredibly easy to get to this area that was just slightly north of where all of the theaters had developed. So right. this was very important to the history of this area. Another very important matter that happened was something that was built right on top of that subway station. That would be the new headquarters of the New York Times. Now, this was an idea of the owner and publisher of the Times, Adolf Ox. Their home, uh, since at least 1851, was at 41 Park Row, back where all the old original newspapers had gathered. But they weren't there any longer. They were starting to spread out throughout the island. As a matter of fact, 
one of those newspapers, the New York Herald, had settled at another one of these key crossroads at 34th and Broadway, which today we call Herald Square after that newspaper. So they renamed that intersection after the New York Herald. So I guess with a little bit of lobbying, they could get them to rename this one. Exactly. So on top of this new subway station, Ox commissioned the brand new home for his newspaper. It would be the second tallest building in the city. And it would actually be the first building that would be built for access to the subway line. At this intersection, too, which is a weird parcel of land. Right, and that building is, of course, still there today and radically transformed, <laughs> and we'll talk about a little bit of that later. Through these connections and through what he, what this building was going to do to the neighborhood, the mayor at the time, George McClellan, decreed that this former horse stable, horse industries area of Longacre Square would have a new name. On April 8th of 1904, it would be called Times Square. The actual article from the New York Times, of course, they talked about it all the time. It was difficult to find other newspapers and their particular viewpoints on this. But in the Times article I read on the following day, modestly claimed, quote, It is a name that serves perfect for identification and is one, (laughs) we think, not likely to be forgotten in this community. (laughs) Needless to say. How unbiased that reporting was. (laughs) And, you know, just as I'm showing outrage that private industry could have something renamed after them like that you know i was thinking about that the other day as i was heading out to city field <laughs> yeah it's it's it, it happens, happens even and, and happens more frequently now they celebrated the opening of the new building on midnight december 31st of 1904 also known as the morning of january 1st 1905 with a display of fireworks that would be shot over that building of course this would morph into a far more celebrated occasion Times Square's New Year's Eve festival. Let's just say now having this subway here and having this gorgeous new building by a high-profile newspaper here, well, what had been sort of a barrier to theater and to culture was now like a big floodgate had been ripped open. Hammerstein, of course, didn't let that Olympia debacle get him down. In 1899, he actually built a more modest stage called the Victoria It was right across the street from where the New York Times building would be built. And when the Times building opened in 1904, the Victoria went vaudeville for a lot of its entertainment. And so that opened the doors to a different kind of people to come up and enjoy that. And it had been in operation already for five years. And in those five years, from 1899 until 1904, three other theaters opened up in the New Amsterdam, the Liberty, and the Lyric right there around it on 42nd Street. So already in those in those first five years, even before the subway station opened up, the theaters were already moving on up. Right. You mentioned the New Amsterdam, which was built in 1903 and was one of those Claw and Erlinger theaters. We talked about the syndicate oh, uh, right. as one of the groups that uh, basically controlled all theatrical production in New York and indeed in the United States. This was sort of like their diamond here on 42nd Street, but so many other theaters opened around it. So that, believe it or not, by 1910, so just so a little more than 10 years after the Victoria opened, mm-hmm. most theaters below about 40th Street or so would be completely shut down because they would be old hat, passe, because this would be New York's brand new theater district. And it's, of course, still that way 100 years later. You mentioned 1910, just as an example. There were 34 legit theaters in operation in New York City in 1910. By 1920, there were 50. And by 1930, there were 71 theaters. And almost all of these were in operation around Times Square. 
not only did they come to this area, but it seemed to strengthen the whole genre. Right? I think it makes sense, too, because it wasn't just the theaters. It was also the restaurants and the nightclubs, like we'll talk about later. Now, I know that on top of these theaters, there would, of course, be a couple really sumptuous hotels that would open. Like in 1904, the Hotel Astor right. would open. And right that, on Times Square. Right on Times Square. And, of course, that would be another venture by the Astor family and would, in fact, have a lot of similarities in its design to the Waldorf Astoria over on 34th Street. And there was also the Hotel Knickerbocker, which would be catty-cornered of the Times building on 42nd and Broadway. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Well, Greg, I really want to get into the subject of the Lobster Palace, Mm -hmm. but I can't leave theater behind yet. Okay. I just wanted to add as well that it became not just a place of theaters, but it became the headquarters of the theater industry. Which meant that there were also all of the offices for the theater production companies, the shops for the sets, for the lighting, for the press agents, the publicity, you name it. The theater industry was happening here. Live performance was the dominant form of entertainment in America at the time. So this was a really big deal. And it wasn't just the performances that were happening in New York at the time, but because of the railroads, this is also where the new touring companies were based. Would emanate out of, right. Right. So actors were then based in New York. The companies were based in New York. There were these giant theaters, but then they might even go on the road. And not to mention that Times Square eventually acted a bit like a magnet to those places down further south at Tin Pan Alley, uh, the songwriting houses. Some of those soon moved up to this area as well. For much more on this, you can listen to any number of podcasts, (laughs) including our podcast on Ziegfeld, Radio City Music Hall, and Tin Pan Alley. Now, let's get back to this lobster palace. <laughs> Give us more information on this. That's that's intriguing. We don't, you know, I, I assume it's not like a red lobster. No. Like it is today. I, I assume it's a little bit fancier. It's a, it's a distant, distant cousin of red <laughs> lobster. In fact, lobster palaces were a phenomenon that occurred, say, between 1900 and 1915, 1920. 
Not only were theaters and stores and hotels competing for businesses, but so were restaurants. And restaurants could offer discerning guests more than just food. They could also offer a show. Well, they had to compete, I guess, in a, in a certain way with the theaters that were going on. So they had to become as big and vibrant as well. And so restaurants were already starting to get bigger in order to attract these crowds. But a lobster palace around 1900 was a place that not only offered fancy meals, but a really fancy, quote-unquote, ambiance as well, very showy, and would end up adding live shows and dancing as well. So you could end up going there for drinks, dinner, a show, and dancing, and you could do it after a show that you've already seen on Broadway. It was a real night on the town. And it would have these European style where the tables would sort of spill out into the street. And so these restaurants would actually create a oh. sort of like an energy just projecting out of them. Actually, we can trace back the Lobster Palace phenomenon to the Cafe Martin, which opened in 1899 on the site of the old Delmonico restaurant near Madison Square Park on 26th Street. Mm -hmm. And Louis Martin introduced in this restaurant side-by-side banquette seating along with an outdoor terrace so people could sit in. It was elevated and there were shrubs in the way so people could sit there, look down at Madison Square Park, and they could not be seen from the streets. Something exclusive. Exclusive, which also came in handy, especially if you were, say, having dinner or lunch with somebody else's wife. (laughs) Then along came Rector's, which was a restaurant on Broadway and 44th Street, which opened in 1900. So right in the middle of what would become Times Square. And I think I would go on record of saying that this is one of Times Square's greatest restaurants that have ever ever existed of all of the It's restaurants. a crime that it's not there today. I wish, yes. Charles Rector spent $200,000 in 1900 to transform this restaurant into a Greco-Roman mirrored and gold-painted monstrosity. <laughs> and Rector's was the kind of place where people specialized in the dramatic entrance. You'd be sitting there, because there were 175 tables or something like that, in this big opulent space, and the band was playing, and you were having a really late dinner and some drinks. You can just hear the buzz of the crowd. When all of a sudden, when a celebrity walked in, conversations would hush, people would set down their lobsters, and the star (laughs) would pose and then parade dramatically to their table. Whether it be Anna Held and Florence Ziegfeld walking in or Diamond Jim Brady. And maybe maybe the band would be playing a song that referred to the show that they were in at the moment. Mm. And celebrities went there to be seen. And when we say celebrities, we're talking about people from the stage. So, so these lobster palaces were attracting a theatrical bunch, also attracting newly upwardly mobile people, businessmen. Now, throughout the, the years, these sort of lobster palaces were, would sort of go from the pretensions of a high society to something that was a little bit more realistic, which, which was a more raucous theater, a more middle class crowd. As far as taste, I think it was always a fine line because these lobster palaces were imitating the great fancy hotels and fancy restaurants that were in New York, but they were catering to, I think, a a less sophisticated... Crowd that had had one too many bottles of champagne, (laughs) so to speak. I think they were having a lot more fun than the people Uh, at these imitated restaurants. Just cracking into their lobsters, (laughs) looking at celebrities. I would definitely rather that the two of us were eating at a lobster palace (laughs) than at Delmonico's. (laughs) 
Agreed. <laughs> of course, as more of these lobster palaces opened, b- competition was becoming more fierce, and people looked at ways to attract these crowds. One of the obvious ways to do it was to give them more of a show. In 1911, the Folie Bergère opened on 49th Street. This was a place run by Henry Harris and Jesse Lasky. It was glamorous. It was an imitation of the Paris cabaret scene with dancing girls and the whole thing. They had two shows a night, plus food, a champagne bar. It was completely glamorous and completely financially unstable. Because they were spending too much money for these huge, lavish celebrations. Exactly. However, elements of this sort of cabaret got rolled over into the Lobster Palace scene, and the Lobster Palace scene started incorporating shows and spectacle, and pretty soon Every lobster palace around Times Square also had a dance floor and a chorus line. You would have singing waiters and waitresses. Places with great names. There was a domino room at Columbus Circle where they had dancing till dawn. There was Murray's Roman Gardens. Which, do you know, I I mean, I don't think there's an official trophy that's given, but is generally seen as the first theme restaurant in Times Square because... It went really kind of overboard with the sort of Roman themes. Of course, we didn't know as much about Rome as we do today. So we can, <laughs> if you look at pictures now, it's just like, well, what are they wearing? Right. It was a real marble columns kind marble of place. Marble chandeliers. Who eats there? The King of France? <laughs> there was Rice and Weber's where they had four different dining and dancing rooms. The Midnight Frolic. The Coconut Grove and so on and so forth. In many ways, you could feel like Times Square hasn't changed. Anytime you feel the temptation to write off these tourist trap restaurants that still persist in Times Square, just recognize that they are part of a very long tradition. And that sort of abandon is still preserved in a lot of them today, even though Planet Hollywood may not be a rector's, but it lives on in the same kind of tradition. Now for the downfall of the Lobster Palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mostly got a little stale around the time of Prohibition, because, of course, alcohol was key to enjoying a lobster palace. (laughs) And it was all gone, so I assume these places dried up with it. There were all kinds of problems around Times Square at the time of Prohibition, because legitimate restaurants could no longer serve booze, and many, many of these just went out of business. And meanwhile, bars, champagne bars, after-theater bars, the ones who survived, of course went underground, becoming speakeasies, which are, of course, illegal drinking establishments. And thousands of these speakeasies, from glamorous to grungy, existed during Prohibition around the Times Square area, not, of course, directly on the square, but hidden in brownstones off to the side streets, above other restaurants, in back rooms behind walls. It's kind of the moment where the nightlife of Times Square that was centralized on 42nd Street and maybe those open plazas started to seep down the side street and how it actually started to influence and change the whole fate of midtown Manhattan. The Prohibition era also saw the era of the nightclub ushered in, which is pretty interesting that nightclubs would gain popularity during a time when booze was technically illegal. However, these nightclubs were protected by the police who were being paid off by the owners of the nightclubs who were, for the most part, mobsters. So this is a period, Prohibition is a period around Times Square that is often characterized by mobsters, crooked policemen, 
but also hot jazz, the excesses of the 20s and 30s, everything from the flappers to chanteuses. And the toe-tapping musicals of George Gershwin and Cole Porter. It's a heyday in a certain in a certain respect. It's very creative, it's very debauched, and it's very underground. Now, I don't mean to disparage what you just said, but I will say oh, this, that, that cities all over the world and even cities here in the United States, had their own theater districts. They had places that attracted tourists. They had these restaurants, and they had these nice shops. And these Did know, they have lobster hotels. palaces? They might have even had lobster palaces. But what they did not have was the one thing that, that, that makes Times Square completely and wholly unique, and that is the electronic advertisements and the lighting of Times Square. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit because you took us up into the 30s or so. Right. But to tell the full tale, I need to go right back to 1900 here. So, hope I'm not making you jump to... No, a little back and forth. I mean, this is a complicated history. Like, as we said, I know. Now, by the 1870s, the invention of electricity and outdoor lighting was starting to be implemented in large cities. In fact, the main avenues in New York would have electric light street lamps by the 1880s. The very first electric sign in New York was the summer of 1892. wasn't in Times Square. It was actually hanging over Madison Square. Mm-hmm. And it was a sign that said, Buy homes on Long Island, swept by ocean breezes. And it was actually an advertisement for two luxury hotels in Brighton Beach, in Manhattan Beach, in fact. And in fact, the very first celebrity to ever be on an electric lit sign was also on this. As they... Advertised the band performances by one John Philip Sousa. Wow. That first sign, by the way, would be hanging on a building that would later be demolished so the Flatiron Building could be placed there instead. What Times Square benefits from is its timing because, you know, within 10 years, electronic signs would, would be desirable for a lot of advertisers. And you also have this primo location at these cross streets where you could place a sign and you could actually see it for almost a mile away if you looked up and down these uh, avenues. That's one of the glorious things about Times Square is if you're like walking on 23rd Street and 6th Avenue or whatever, you can see the signs of Times Square, just that glow of the city just right ahead of you and just north. Now, we talk about all the great innovators of theater and architecture and all the things that make Times Square important, but there are also a couple of men here that I'm going to mention that are great innovators of lighting design. And actually, this is super important and crucial to the history of Times Square and what we know and love about it today. The first man, a man named Oscar Goode. In 1904, his firm actually designed some of the first and most innovative of these signs in Times Square. 1904 was the very first electronic advertisement. It was on 47th Street. It hung on 47th Street facing south, and it was for a product called Trimble Whiskey. Uh-huh. And it had two... Kicking it off with booze. Yes, of course, naturally. Two clinking glasses... Trimble whiskey means almost nothing to people today, except for the fact that it was the first advertisement. You can just imagine what it must have been like to be the first electronic sign, because the streets themselves would have still been fairly dark. There would have been some street lamps. The hotels, of course, would have had a little glow and the restaurants, but it was set up two or three stories. It must have truly been spectacular. 
Indeed. In fact, these large pieces, these large works would end up being called spectaculars. Within a few years, the streets would be lined with these big event spectacular signs with sophisticated tricks, even certain sort of primitive animation. Sometimes they had nothing to do with the product they were selling. And, and these engineers who would design these signs... They not only were trying to make an engaging design, but they made them move too, right? Using the yes, using the technology of the day, they were able to switch lights back and forth in such a way that it created a, a very rudimentary movement, but New Yorkers had never seen that at the time and it was extraordinary. As a matter of fact, there were so many lights within a few years that it's rumored that Good himself was the one that came up with the phrase the great white way which was a, uh-huh. a play on the phrase the gay white way, which is what the theater district had been called in the 1890s. This, of course, I think still stays with us more, the great white way. Although I'm sure that some would argue that the theater district is still the... Well, forget it. <laughs> right. Now, within just the first 10 years, some of the things that um, his company worked on, this great ad involving a kitten that was playing with the string, Corticelli thread was, wow. the, was the product exploding champagne bottles, women in corsets. Some of these signs were a little bit racy, very much. There was, in fact, there was the Heather Bloom Petticoat Girl. That was this advertisement that sort of with a little movement where was a girl caught in the rain and like the wind would lift up her dress and expose a red petticoat underneath. Oh, hot. Soon the whole district here was, of course, on fire with all these white twinkling lights that so... Obviously, the theaters that were around here had to sort of compete with that as well. In 1916, the Rialto Theater, which was on Broadway and 42nd, it had its first spectacular marquee that now joins the fray of lights here. And it was an animated fireworks that was behind its name. Although the theaters already had marquees, right? With lights, of course, that were... But, but this, they had to shining compete. Shining bright. Yeah, but they had, this was like, they had to up the ante to get people's attention here. Now, this is not going to surprise you. This is not a very Beaux-Arts movement. And we're still <laughs> in the Beaux-Arts, the architecture and right. the, the style of like what is generally seen as being the proper way for a city to look is still happening here. And there were a lot of protests by even the Municipal Art Society mm-hmm. was against this originally. But good taste couldn't kill these signs. Pro- pro- good pro- taste? Good taste could not. Neither prohibition couldn't kill them. These sign debuts would be treated like free outdoor shows. Thousands of people would come to gather to see a, a brand new sign be unveiled. In 1928, newspapers got into the act. Now, the New York Times did not stay in that Times building very long. They moved to a, a headquarters that's very close by. But they still owned that building. And what they did in 1928 is they put this wraparound sign on the building, an electronic zipper that would be streaming news headlines. And this, of course, would later on become sort of a a central area of Times Square, especially when very important news events would happen. The 1930s brought the introduction of neon signs into Times Square, and it also brought probably the greatest man in the history of Times Square. And his name is Douglas Lee. He is a, a very scrappy sign designer from Alabama. He moved to New York when he was 21, started his own firm, and he got his first advertisement in Times Square in 1933 with a steaming cup of A&P coffee. Now, the steam... Oh, motif, I was thinking Maxwell House. Well, they, the steam motif would be very popular and used throughout the year. This would get him on the map. 
it was very successful. And of course, the team that he surrounded himself with had limitless imagination. Very importantly, in, ni- in 1937, he actually brought over this Swiss lighting technology called Epoch, which allowed a more s- seamless animation into some of these signs. So you could actually have moving human figures like you did on the old gold cigarette ad on Broadway and 43rd Street. His golden period was during the 1930s and up to the beginning of World War II. Dozens of spectacular marquees and ads. Around this time, a lot of these theaters would would make the transition into movie palaces. In fact, that would we'll talk a little bit more about right. that later. But like around this time, like he'd have an animated femme fatale that would be like hovering over the RKO Palace. You'd have a Brahmo seltzer bubbling. In 1940, you had the Wilson Whiskey ad, which was on 46th and Broadway. It was like this multi-decked ad. Like the top deck had a dancing digital water fountain. And then the bottle of the whiskey that would have a sort of 3D effect. Underneath it, on the side, you'd have a perpetual highball being made, (laughs) a cocktail being made the whole time. And then there'd be a box, so there'd be a, a lot of featured animations that could be just people would just sit there on the street and watch this. And most of these were actually in the sort of canyon part, the opening yes. of the square. The 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 most famous ones, the because these got the most visibility right, from sure. visitors who were here, and you could also these are again because these are the ones you could see for several blocks away. In, in 1941, like five days after Pearl Harbor, which they d- must not have liked this timing, was the debut of one of the most famous ads, which is that Camel Cigarette uh, ad with the, with the smoke rings. It right. actually sat in Times Square for 27 years, wow. blowing those smoke rings, because it, so, it was so popular. It was, so, it was such an amazing... Uh, and a feat... Now, I mentioned World War II here. Actually, a lot of work on some of these signs diminished, or the, or the lighting spectacles would diminish once we entered the war. You know, Times Square at this time is a centerpiece of New York and clearly the most flashiest and flamboyant part. During the war, when people thought that Germans might even attack the United States, Times Square, they thought, was actually a target, the Paramount Building which was built in the 1920s, they actually added fire equipment to the roof in case of an air raid. And then the New Year's celebration that year, um, in December of 1941, the the Astor Hotel was filled with over a thousand air raid wardens. And they had all these pre-printed signs just in case for an emergency. Not to mention for these two years, 1942 and 43, they had a dim out. For mm-hmm. New Year's Eve, where they didn't celebrate with the ball dropping and the great the great lights. In fact, they had a moment of silence and played chimes afterwards. But believe it or not, Times Square itself, like the activity, the culture, it didn't really die down. Like people were still going to the theater. They were still enjoying nightlife. Interestingly, one of the big components, this thing that gets infused into the world of Times Square during this time, were the thousands and the thousands of servicemen on leave that were coming and going and were filling the city. Times Square was the most attractive to them because it was they were looking to escape their troubles, and this was one of the most decadent areas even then. I mean, the musical on the town, the 1944 musical on the town, I think encapsulates this. The story of three sailors hitting the town for one night looking for love. Right off of Times Square on 44th Street would be the Stage Door Canteen, which actually entertained, specifically entertained servicemen and had a lot of big stars there doing vaudeville song and dance and doing some of their big numbers. Now, a lot of this would have side effects to Times Square. For instance, there would be 
a little bit of a, a gay scene that would develop cruising places, pickup joints and bars on some of the side streets. In fact, Tennessee Williams was famously known to pick up sailors around this area. It wasn't just a gay scene, though. I mean, this this area since 1900 um, had been known for cruising of both men and women and prostitutes, of course, knew that they could always find willing clients looking around this area because, of course, it wasn't just an area that New Yorkers came to look for a little affection. It was also a great tourist destination, and tourists knew that they could also behave a little naughty. They weren't back in Iowa. No one was looking over their their shoulders. So even as far back as 1900, people were crusading against the street walkers and the prostitutes and the brothels of the area. And then during LaGuardia's time, there was a crusade. And it was only getting worse. Now, I will end this part only with one of the most famous images of Times Square, of course, on August 14th of 1945, with the gathering of thousands of people watching this zipper around the Times building that would announce the surrender of the Japanese and the end of World War II. And of course, the most famous photograph of Times Square, which we all know, the Alfred Eisenstadt picture of the sailor grabbing the, the nurse of you know, in the uh, impromptu kiss published in Life magazine and seen billions of times. And, you know, this is one of the most winsome moments of, of Times Square. Unfortunately, Times Square would start to go on a little bit of a downhill slide. That's right. It's that time of the podcast, the <laughs> downfall before the rebirth section of the show. Which, which happens so many times, especially now that we're here with the 50s and 60s and 70s. But, you know, it's actually not that simple, because even during its rough time, Times Square continued to be an integral intersection of the world, if you will, hosting these extravagant New Year's Eve celebrations, offering Broadway blockbusters and, you know, serving, continuing to serve as a tourist magnet. So that's my sort of caveat. Mm -hmm. However, the general themes of the 1950s through, let's say, 1990, um, if we're taking some really broad strokes and we need to because uh we need to wrap this up, do signify that it was something of a difficult time. Essentially, it goes from rated R to triple X around this time. (laughs) PG-13. Okay. To not rated. (laughs) As we've discussed in many other shows, notably the Robert Moses podcast, uh, during the 1950s, the middle class was taking flight to the suburbs for the most part, and the city was losing this very valuable group of residents and tax dollars as well. Car culture was mandating that residents should be able to drive and park wherever they wanted. If they couldn't, then that destination was outdated. I mean, Mm -hmm. this was the philosophy of our friend Robert Moses, and uh, who believed that really Times Square with its, what was it? It it was a place with narrow streets, no parking. It was a place you walked. Crowds. It was just one big traffic jam. The area was trying to fight back and would hatch some pretty amazing and somewhat funny uh, today to our eyes revitalization efforts as far back as the 60s. The second big strike against Times Square was that television had become the nation's dominant entertainment choice, even while Broadway was experiencing something of a golden age. Um, Movies had swept in, of course, in the 1910s, and certainly by the 1920s, they were being shown in in Times Square. And in fact, legit theaters were, even early on, switching over to show movies or incorporate them into their shows. Of course, like Vaudeville would, would start showing shows, and maybe they'd have chorus girls and the whole thing. So early on, though, 
film and theater were coexisting. Television was a totally different beast, though. It was free, it was available from home, and it was somehow the future. Even so, though, Greg, even with the huge threat the TV posed against theater, the period between, well, 1950 and 1970 produced some incredibly important blockbuster musicals and things that are really like the backbone of the American musical theater canon today. For instance, in the 1950s, we had Guys and Dolls, The King and I in 51, Wonderful Town in 53, Damn Yankees in 55, My Fair Lady in 56, West Side Story in 57, The Music Man in 57, The Sound of Music in 59. Uh, So, okay, I get so I understand. Gypsy in 59. That's just the 50s. I get it. I get it. But but, that's that's all amazing. But now, but isn't there something else happening in Times Square? Like, that's really is the golden age. But how is that coexisting next to this slide, I guess, into cultural, you know, more, you know. That's the messiness of history because (laughs) this was a golden age. And I'll I'll spare you the 60s list because I also have a list of (laughs) 60s musicals. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, anyone? (laughs) But theater habits were changing. People weren't going as much as they used to. It became a destination. It became something, you know, the, the crowds who were going to the theater tended to be more tourists who were coming to New York to go to the theater. As a result of this, theaters were actually closing. In the 20s, there were 70 to 80 Broadway theaters. By 1969, there were only 36 Broadway area theaters. Similarly, the number of productions were cut in half as well. By 1969, there were only 62 productions opening on Broadway. So, and 15 of those were revivals. So the industry was changing. And then what was happening to these other theaters? You know, they were either being ripped down and being turned into, say, office towers or they were converting to something a little bit seedier. Because there were a lot of movie theaters around here as well. They were either going to second-run, double-feature type things. They were right. going to Grindhouse, right. which are the sort of low-budget, dirtier, uh, you know, more controversial topics. Or they were going to porn. And by the 1960s, Greg, adult cinema in the Times Square area had actually become mainstream. So... Think of the 60s blockbuster musicals. Think of the crowds going to those. Imagine that they had to walk by porno theaters and such at the same time. That is a jarring juxtaposition that doesn't even exist in Times Square anymore. And it continued through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The porn was next to the legitimate theater throughout Times Square. Well, you could go see Annie and then walk by like nine porn theaters to get there. (laughs) Exactly. With the kids. Now, of course, for some, you know, this was a draw. The the porn theaters themselves were a draw and a reason to visit Times Square. So we shouldn't be so one-sided about this. Yeah, I don't see your I don't see your handy list of like the great porn films of the 70s. <laughs> Where are you behind the green door? Oh, well, one reason that I'm not romanticizing about the porn theaters opening, Greg, is because it wasn't just the theaters. Along with the sex industry that was coming into this area, there was all kinds of other activities. There were muggings, there there was thievery, drug deals, there was a lot of fighting, shootings that were happening. The crime rate in the Times Square area during the same period exploded, and it became really sort of a symbol for something seedy and dangerous and represented every ill facing urban America. I will just note that In the midst of all of this, actually, if we can rewind to 1955, another notable addition to Times Square, 
beyond the spectaculars that went up was Hojo's, Howard Johnson's opening its first restaurant on Times Square, serving meals and cocktails through 2005. Did you know that there were actually at one time in the 1950s, there were actually three Hojo's on oh, the square? Oh, yes. And one of them was even a, like directly across the street. It was even more ridiculous than yeah. Starbucks and is today. People would just line up to get a table. They'd line up on the sidewalk to get in. And during the day, some very famous people came out of the Hojo staff, including Gene Hackman, who worked as a host, and a waitress named Lily Tomlin. Wow. She was not the waitress when you and I used to go to the Howard um, Johnson's. Alas, no. Also in 1973, the TKTS Half Price Theater ticket booth opened uh, in Times Square under Mayor Lindsay. It was created by the Theater Development Fund to help sell same-day unsold tickets, and it's been obviously incredibly successful. I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast have at some time purchased a half-price ticket. They've sold 51 million tickets since it opened. As you mentioned, there have been plans to try to clean up and like contain and make this a more livable environment since the, you know, the 1960s. By the 1970s, of course, with all of the terrible debt that the city accrued and they were in no position to do anything about Times Times Square and it just got worse. It was clear that what was needed was actually private money, private funds to be injected into this system. There's a lot of interesting proposals that I could get into. I think the one that I find most interesting is the one that happened in 1979, the one that was proposed by the nonprofit Ford Foundation. It was called, because they all had these sort of like catchy names, the city at 42nd Street. It was focused on 42nd Street, but would have seeped into and influenced all of Times Square. It would have renovated all the theaters. It was a $6 million plan. It would have had these pedestrian bridges that Mm. would have been over 42nd Street, up and down 42nd Street, so people wouldn't dart into traffic because this is the 70s, everyone's driving cars. Right. There would be a place on the south side of 42nd Street, and I must think that it literally must have taken up the entire block called Cityscape. It would have been an exposition center that would have been sponsored by major corporations. You would essentially go into this massive, massive structure. You buy tickets like you're going to an amusement park. There would be rides, amusements, games inside to this place. There would even be a monorail that would circle. I mean, that's how big it was. A monorail inside this Cityscape, okay? Now, if that wasn't enough for you... There would also be this sort of like new innovative film technology that would be used called the IMAX. Wow, on well, some of this Street. actually I know. came true. Now, on the north side of the street, there would be more of this type of stuff, including a gigantic Ferris wheel. So that's what they wanted to do at Times Square in 1979. Ed Koch, the mayor at the time, hated this idea, and he called it, quote, Disneyland at 42nd Street, very prophetically, but he, this was actually like a negative calling it Disneyland. He had his own plan that involved building large office towers here instead of this and making it more of a business district. How cheery. Neither of these plans, of course, happened. Although elements of both of those are in, are in evidence today. Do exist, yes. I have to note something that very interesting happened in uh, the mid-1980s, in 1987, a zoning law that required businesses in Times Square to have an electric sign of a certain size 
I find it marvelous that like through the history of New York and probably in most cities, you would have zoning laws that would have diminished lighting and that you couldn't do certain things and certain size of advertising. Here in Times Square, you had to have a certain size advertisement. And I believe it was the Municipal Arts Society, to bring it full circle, who helped push through this zoning change. Now, in the 1990s, things were actually got a little dire before they got better. There were all these office towers in Times Square area that were actually empty. So, bolstered by tax incentives, essentially, you had to force people to get to Times Square. And sure enough, Morgan Stanley, CBS, Bertelsmann, they all moved in in the early 90s. Having them there was sort of like, it was almost like when the Times Tower moved in. It was like, well, okay, these people have moved in. So right. in 1993, there was this huge push called 42nd Street Now, exclamation point, um, by the 42nd Street Development Project. It would eschew all these like really big ideas like cityscape and everything. And it was like, well, Times Square needs to be a mix of the old and the new and the big and the small, but it needs to have this certain unified idea and its showiness and this very certain identity that Times Square has developed. Bolstering this was, of course, in 1993, one certain Disney who came in and renovated and took over the new Amsterdam theater. Now, I know that Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor for much of the 90s, gets a lot of the credit, and he did indeed do a lot of things that cleaned up the crime. And he, in fact, he did this generally throughout the city. But a lot of this actually happened. The seeds were planted during Ed Koch and during David Dinkins. By the mid-90s, Madame Tussauds moved in. All these brand new gigantic multiplexes moved in on, on 42nd Street. Another kind of floodgate opened, very similar to what happened almost 100 years ago. With And soon, like, all of Times Square was benefiting from all these sort of major corporations that were getting all of these breaks and coming in and cleaning up the streets and revitalizing everything. Now, it's odd because both Tom and I moved to New York City in this period of time, in the 1990s. I specifically remember walking down 42nd Street, and I think a lot of the really, like, the porn cinema theaters had been closed, but they were, Mm -hmm. it was just a sort of an empty street with, like, empty marquees with nothing on them. It wasn't necessarily dangerous, but then there would be a lot of side streets where there'd be some sort of sleazy places. Oh, yeah. And I I certainly remember coming in the 80s, in fact, in the family's Aerostar, all the way (laughs) from northern Ohio. And when we got to Times Square, it was definitely a windows up, doors locked kind of place because people, I remember seeing images, people walking in the streets and And it seeming very ominous and exciting at the same time. And then as a college student, yeah, in the early 90s, Times Square was certainly seedy. I remember the porn theaters on 42nd Mm -hmm. Street, but also the clubs that we would go out to, Club Mm -hmm. USA, which was, of course, at Times Square, Mm -hmm. and, and other attractions that drew us down to Times Square. As amazing and as bright and colorful as Times Square is today, it's, you know, it does have a certain plasticness to it and with all of these chain establishments that are moved that have moved in there and i mean that's what part of the real ambivalence that people who have lived in new york for a long time have with times square i mean they don't miss the crime and the things that were really bad but some of these uh more grittier elements there's some nostalgia for them i think also there's a lot of show obviously that's on display in the spectaculars that have gone up since the, the ordinance was passed. 
But something seems very orchestrated to me about it. You know, it seems like it's a top-down imposition of chaotic electrical activity. But I don't know. I somehow feel like there are fewer legitimate surprises. I mean, you have places like MTV and ABC who do Good Morning America here. You have these gigantic brand new towers like the Condé Nast building and the Bank of America building that are completely new, crisp, modern elements like there's not a lot of history associated with these types of things i mean this is still the center of new york theater and live performance it's also a little bit of the center of american excess and wealth as we've seen with the recent car bomb attempt that just happened in 2010 it can represent both good and ill we're not going to actually get into some of the details of New Year's Eve celebrations, but if you'd like to hear that, you can go into into an old early show on the history of one Times Square, where we bring up the history of some of the things like the first ball drop and, and things like that. But thank you for celebrating the history of Times Square with us this holiday season. Clearly, I will have a lot of pictures on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I mean, there's millions of pictures of old Times Square, and all of them are, one is more brilliant than the next, so I'll have a good selection of those. I have an announcement to make that will sort of influence our schedule for the next few months. I'll be taking a little breather from solo shows, so our podcast will officially be a monthly show for the next few months. But this should not be a reason for concern, dear listener, because this will actually give us time to to discuss other Bowery Boys projects that we'd like to get in the works. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we've needed to we've needed to move this to the next level, and a lot of things that uh, are exciting projects that we've been in discussions with, but haven't had the time. So I'm just going to take a few months from solo shows. Just wanted to put that out there. But of course, the blog will still be up and running, as will our Facebook page. And if you need a fix, you can always dip back into the archive, the Bowery Boys archive for episodes 2 through 50. So thank you. And Tom, thank you. Thank we, you, we Greg. Got, we got through Times Square. I'm really, I'm happy. I want to go there now, in fact. I might go to... <laughs> and celebrate. I might go to the Red Lobster. There's a red, there's no more lobster palaces, <laughs> but there is a Red Lobster. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm heading, I'm headed there now. So thank you all very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. <laughs>